Welcome to the Mind Sculptors once again. This is Cobblepot, your host. Today, Callahan is not feeling well, so we're going to do something a little bit different from normal. We're going to just kind of do a casual, off-the-cuff conversation. But before we get into that, if you like this episode or what we do in general, please don't forget to check out our Patreon, like, subscribe, all of those things down below. Um, today, I am going to be joined by my good friend, Pongo. Pongo, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Glad to be here as always. Excellent. And we also have our good friend, Charles, also known as the mono white guy. Hey, Kalpot. <laughs> yeah. So today, we, rather than doing something scripted and something researched, we wanted to maybe just kind of open up a little bit uh, into the, the things that we kind of have personally going on, uh, both in magic and both outside of magic, just to maybe give a little kind of insight into uh, where we are kind of coming from. And I know that Charles, you were talking about wanting to get a little bit into just kind of you know, where you started with magic and what got you into it and how long you've been there. Did you want to maybe open this up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, some people have been wondering why, who, or how is the mono white guy kind of existing? Uh, I mean, to sort of diffuse that mythos in a way, the name was not really something that I kind of coined myself. It was just something that kind of tagged along. Uh, and uh, for those of you who are wondering, um, yeah, I only have white cards that I played with. Uh, I actually just recorded an episode with Playing With Power yesterday, and uh, we were thinking about doing a, a Chroma face-off with uh, Sakashima, and I point out to them, like, hey guys, I do not have any basic islands. I don't have any other basic lands other than basic planes. <laughs> you, you actually don't even own them? Like, I don't in, own in your them. collection? No, wow. no, no. So, so, uh, and, th and I guess that like kind of ties in with like my, uh, origin stories per se. Uh, I mean, like I, I've not always been the mono white guy. Uh, in fact, I had actually intended to retire from playing magic and it wasn't until I had met, uh, uh, Jeremy Knoll at, from Commander Versus from Star City Games at Gen Con. And we weren't even playing Magic. We were playing this other game called Ascension, which was a board game created by Justin Gary, who was a former uh, pro Magic player. Uh, I think he's in the Pro Player Hall of Fame. And uh, he has a book on thinking like a game designer, which Mark Rosewater wrote the foreword to. Uh, I've worked with Justin Gary before on uh, designing some games as a playtester for uh, his, he has something called like the cultist group. The cultist is like a reference to one of the creature types in the Ascension board game. It's not like we're an actual cult, so please don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I've worked with Justin Gary uh, before and we've talked about game design and stuff. And Jeremy also happened to be friends with Justin Gary. And I ran into Jeremy uh, at the Ultra Pro booth at Gen Con. And we hung out for a bit. And the subject of Magic the Gathering somehow, like, spurred up. And he told me that, you know, he was part of this group called Commander Versus. And I was like, I don't know what that is. I mean, like, I'm like the Thanos meme. Like, people will, will tell me, like, you know... Uh, Cobblepot would be like, hey, you know, I'm Cobblepot from the Lab Maniacs. I've heard of the Lab Maniacs, but I've never heard of Cobblepot. Or like Pongo's like, you know, I'm from Team Turn 3. It's like, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> uh, but you knew about magic at this point. 
I did know about Magic at this point. I've been playing Magic for like 15 years, or more than 15 years now. Uh, like I started in the original Mirrodin block at the end of Fifth Dawn, and where I really like sank my teeth into was actually Kamigawa block. Like the first pre-release I ever attended was uh, Betrayers of Kamigawa, getting that Ink Eyes promo. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and and I've been playing Magic. Uh, kind of on and off since, like, I, I played up to Time Spiral block, then around Lorwyn block was when my interest kind of petered away, and then we had the Alara block where I just was completely absent in because, you know, there were no monocolors in that block. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joshing people here. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, like, uh, I think it was around, like, uh, Eventide, I, I kind of I came back, and... Uh, and I, uh, I think it was either Shadowmoor or, or, or Eventide. We there, there was the, the the noblest of war, the Balefire Legis, those hybrid color cards, because mm-hmm. you could actually force some monocoloredness into it. Right, you could. Yeah. You didn't have to commit to a single color to be able to play those cards, and they mm-hmm. kind of took on different personalities, like the noblest of war. For I, I remember that mm-hmm. um, playing very differently in mono white than it did in mono red, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Uh, and I mean, but like, I think I think it might surprise to some people. I wasn't playing mono white back then. I was actually playing mono red. I was a huge mono red player. I loved playing mono red. Um, and uh, I'm going to rewind time a little bit back as well because I'm kind of jumping all over the place. But I mean, this is off the cuffs, I suppose. Uh, I was a uh, when I was a kid growing up. I was actually a school bully. And I bully this one kid when I moved into uh, my neighborhood. I'm from the the DMV area, uh, so I was born in D.C. and I was raised mostly in Maryland. And the county that I was from, Howard County, uh, I moved there from PG County, and it's a huge income gap difference. I was like the one Asian kid and like a sea of all other black kids. And then when I moved to Howard County, which was a more affluent uh, county, you saw like this huge wealth disparity. And I was now, you know, this one Asian kid in a sea of all white kids. It was actually really disorienting for me. Uh, I was in fifth grade at the time. And my neighbor was this other Asian kid who, uh, his name was Jason. Uh, and uh, not you, Cobblepot, but this other Jason. Yeah. <laughs> and and I kind of figured. Yeah. And he the first thing that he said to me when he when we met, he rode up in his bicycle. He had braces on, a helmet, knee pads. It was the most dorkiest kid that you could imagine. And he's like, Hey man, welcome to the neighborhood. You want to check out my Bionicles collection? And like I immediately beat him up. <laughs> oh my. He and I, by the way, would later become like the best friends ever. But yeah. So, so yeah, you were going to say does that, Cobble. So like, how does that naturally progress to to Magic: The Gathering? So yeah, so I started off playing Pokemon, and I collected Pokemon trading cards, and I didn't learn how to play the Pokemon trading card game until they came out with like the Game Boy game for it. And then uh, I had a my cousin introduced me to Yu-Gi-Oh around in middle school, and it wasn't in high school when I ran into Jason again. Uh, that like my interest in, in Yu-Gi-Oh faded, and Jason was into this card game called Magic the Gathering, which he got it from his friend's father, 
uh, when they were playing Dungeons and Dragons, and they were playing 2.0 at the time. Uh, and so uh, he was just getting into Magic the Gathering. He had been playing for, I want to say, three years at that point, and he was really into Magic the Gathering. And uh, during my time playing Yu-Gi-Oh!, I've heard about the game Magic the Gathering, but I've never played it. And uh, my interest now you know transitioned over to magic and uh this kid that i bullied i basically like out of out of whim just was like you know i I don't really want to bully you anymore like i really had no animosity against you i just thought that you had a really punchable face uh i mean like that's that's (laughs) that that look man like i was i was i was a troublesome child all right uh and 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 jason was uh was like oh okay cool but you gotta you gotta do something to make up for all the grievances that you gave to me in the past. And so I became his indentured servant for like one year. And uh, the thing that he made me do as his indentured servant, and this is, I think, like a sad thing, I guess, anyways, that he didn't really have anyone to play magic with. So he made me play magic with him. And he gave me all these articles to read about, about magic, so that I could learn how to play the game. And the articles were mostly by Mark Rosewater. This is where like my like love affection for Mark... Uh, and like Wizards game design kind of came into the foray here. And once again, I'm going to rewind out of order uh, back to like third grade. I was seven years old and I had uh, an assignment in one of my, I guess, like English. I think they called them reading classes back in the day. And it was uh, to visualize who you want to be when you grew up and to draw a picture of it. And that was like an existential crisis for me at third grade, because I had, because it's one thing to tell a kid like, hey, who do you want to be when you grow up? And they just blurt out a random answer. It's another thing where you actually like gave them assignment and had them like draw it out. And it was like, you you had to sit and think about it. And that was daunting as a child. Like uh, it blew my mind, because uh, I actually didn't know who I wanted to be. And so- I feel ahead. like that early, I, I, I think that, I mean, kids are, I think, more optimistic. I, I know. I feel like probably at that age, I was way more optimistic about what I wanted to be. And kind of as I learned more and, you know, got to high school and that kind of thing, started to, you know, reality kind of set in and like, oh, wait a minute, that probably won't. I couldn't be a rock star and be an engineer. I have to choose. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that's funny because like when I was a kid, I did not have that thought. Uh, I I was like, no, this isn't doable. This isn't workable. I don't know how to get from A to B. The other thing that like bothered me was that uh, I was I was a very lazy kid. I was also a very delinquent child, uh, as you as anyone listening to this might notice that, you know, I was a bully. Uh, one of the things was that I was also a very proficient liar. Like, if I wanted something, I would lie to get it. And if I got caught lying, I didn't learn as a child that lying was morally bad. I instead learned that you had to not get caught. Uh, and uh, Consequences are the best teacher. I, I, wait, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to figure this out. Is this a redemption arc, or is this, like, the supervillain... Right, I'm, I'm rising waiting story. with bated breath yeah. to, to, like, yeah. to find out how, how, the, how, the, how the, <laughs> Yeah, secretly I'm actually mono black guy, not <laughs> mono white guy, right? Uh, but it sounds yeah. more Orzov to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really. Uh, oh man, you should tell. I should tell you the stories that I've told Callahan about about the mono white things that I've done that were secretly mono black. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, yeah, guilt, by the way, is a great driving force that is both positive and negative. I'll leave it at that. Um, right. But uh, yeah, so so 
as a kid, I I I had this whole existential crisis because I did because because uh, I felt like I had the world in my uh, palm in a way. Like uh, if I wanted something, I could lie to get it. Uh, my my chief drive or or, or operative was pleasure. Uh, not like in the sense of lust or anything like that, but just gratification. Like Pokemon came out in like 97. I wanted to play Pokemon, right? And uh, my parents would restrict my access to like playing video games uh, by making me do like these like reading reports. And I, I realized that my parents, which were who were immigrants, uh, didn't really know how to speak English. So I could literally like make up whatever I wanted to write in my reading reports and they wouldn't care, right? Math problems were a lot harder because math is more of a universal language. Uh, and I got really good at math uh, for that reason. But like, uh, even then, it everything that I did was driven towards the fact of me looking for for a reward for myself, and to constantly seek out that reward. It was a very uh, uh, what would Immanuel Kant call it? Like a primitive mindset, like a, a like a based instinct rather than. Right. Than anything of like an autonomous agent, right? Like there was no sense of like true self-awareness. It was just like I just want more of this. It's like a child wanting like candy or 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 a dog chasing a car, right? right. It's, it's it sounds very unfiltered. Yeah, and so and so when I was presented the question of who I want to be, there was that sense of like identity now. But then came sort of like the 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 daunting or depressing realization of, you know, you, you realizing you are this young in your life. Like this is, this was me at seven years old. I realized that I had a whole life ahead of me and I would be someone someday. And that, uh, I could, and that I felt like at that time I could do anything. If I put my mind to it, the question then became, what should I be putting my mind into? Right. And so finding a way to make mono white, <laughs> yeah and so, and so this is really funny because i would not really th- like like this this was something that like echoed across like in the back of my mind and reverberated from time to time but i often distracted myself with just entertainment like i'd be playing pokemon and be playing final fantasy or Yu-Gi-Oh or whatever video games to distract me because self-gratification was my escape was my escapism from like the reality of my parents from the reality of my life from the reality of my social income class and everything right uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, it wasn't until like, I was, I want to say like 14 or 13 that I read this article from Mark Rosewater talking about the different colors of the color pie. And I think like the question was poised as, you know, ba- because back then there weren't like the Brady walkers. Uh, and, and for some of you who are like young listeners brady Dommermith was i think the guy who actually introduced the concept of planeswalkers as a car type and design originally the premise of the game of magic the gathering was that you yourself are a planeswalker and you're like mm-hmm. god and you summon like lands onto the battlefield or you put lands onto the battlefield and you summon like legendary creatures from other multiverses to fight at your side and all that stuff i mean those were different times man (laughs) and 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 so i had this idea in my mind or like the the question that was poised to me was that you are a planeswalker in this game that you're playing the game that you're playing you're a planeswalker uh if you created a plane that is to your own existence like sarah's realm right Mm -hmm. or or like phyrexia from yogmoth uh 
what would be in that plane? What would be the ideal world that you imagine that is your perfect world? Who are you, right? And and that immediately, like ricocheted back to that seven-year-old self of myself, and and I was like, holy cow, right? And 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 it was like it was like it's really funny because like if I had heard like the Myers Briggs or something like that, I might have like became obsessed with that. But this was something that was like interesting to me because uh, it took the it because oftentimes I escaped my existential crisis with uh, self gratification from pleasure and entertainment, and now the source of my pleasure and entertainment is making me confront my ex make me makes me confront my own existence. Uh, right. Yeah, and and. Mark had, you know, the the five colors of magic, and talked about what each color cared, uh, cared about or represented, and and that uh, became my new obsession. I, for the next, uh, I want to say, was it? I was like 13, 14. For the next seven to eight years of my life, I would be studying the color pie religiously. Actually, uh, I ended up going to college with a degree in philosophy. Um, just and applying that and applying uh, a lot of the things I learned from philosophical concepts into the color pie. And if you ever find like my old account on MTG Salvation, right? Uh, I, I does that wrote, still exist? I think so. I mean, there was a there was so so they had clan threads. Uh, and uh, Tom Hade, who's the owner of the Kiro Cavern in Virginia, if you ever go down there, I know that some legacy players actually frequent down there. He was the leader of that clan thread, and uh, and I actually wrote tons of color pie essays on that clan thread. Like they would go to great lengths. If you think that my Twitter ramblings are long, you should read. <laughs> My essay, my, my, my essays back then about like what does it mean for someone to be you know color? What is a Johnny Qua white or what is Sarkon Qua um, uh, Gruel? Because back then Sarkon Vol was just red green. He wasn't all these other color combinations that he was. And what makes him transition from one color to another color? I mean, those were like some of the philosophical questions that I asked. I remember reading an article about Doug Byer. Uh, explaining about like the concept of indestructibility because and he was he was kind of like invoking ideas of uh, sartorism about like you know if something is indestructible it has to be immutable right because if you can't go from a state of 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 unchangeable to something that is change from something that is indestructible to something that is destroyed the very meaning of something being indestructible means that it cannot be be mutated so how does it exist right does it exist like by default uh or was it created into something like that and if so then that means that it was malleable at some point so it wasn't indestructible the entire time and so when it was granted the ability of indestructibility uh like would that not imply that that itself was is also a mutable property that can be taken away and that was a really interesting philosophical article that uh, i read that also evoked ideas similar to like uh jean paul sartre's um essays on existentialism but i'm getting like way too uh lost in the leads right there <laughs> about that but yeah um uh, so that, eventually yeah, you wind up with all of this culminating in you kind of aligning yourself wholly and kind of unilaterally with the identity of, of mono white. Um, where, what's that last step that gets you there? 
Yeah, so uh, there was a point in college uh, in my senior year where I actually still hadn't figured out what color I was. And then a friend of mine told me to like get my head out of my butt and, uh, you know, just pick one because he had a really good point, which was you don't have sufficient data in living because part of the thing about like life itself and 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 figuring out who you are is that you actually have to live it (laughs) and 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 you do not have enough like you know data points uh to find something representative of yourself because you've constantly spent most of your life just thinking about it and so just pick a color and so i chose the color red because it looked pretty actually that was completely impulsive and i stuck with red for like uh i want to say the next five years four or five years of my life uh i fell in love with a woman uh i had my heart broken and uh she also played magic and it was very difficult for me to get back into playing magic and uh i felt like there was a huge uh emotional psychological shift in my mindset i was no longer you know the kid bully back in high school i was no longer like this you know uh, impetuous like curious uh, like uh, reckless scholar in, in my college years or anything like that. And like the drive in, in playing magic was also sort of gone out of me. And so uh, I, 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 I shifted my, my view and my understanding of myself to a different color. And uh, Pongo, I guess this is where you would find the redemption arc, right? Where I just basically started playing mono white. Um, during this time, I had uh, difficulty trying to overcome grief in my loss of a, of a relationship, and I ended up helping. I ended up meeting a homeless man that I ended up helping out, and uh, he turns out to have been a con artist. Uh, and uh, I lost about fifteen hundred dollars from this person. Uh, and wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, like also at this time, I was also working as a software developer, uh, and I got my first job as a software developer. Basically, I was dating this woman, and uh, and at that time, I was still working at my parents' restaurant, and and there was like a realization to me that like, hey, I can't really be living off of this lifestyle. I have to do something to like make a living if I want to continue pursuing this romantic relationship. So I worked really hard to find a job. I taught myself software development. I got myself a job in software development. And by the time I got that job, she broke up with me and moved to Delaware. Uh, so that sucked. Uh, and and I was really depressed, and I had really difficulty letting it go. I was a really clingy guy back then. And uh, through that process, I had to refine. I had to like refine myself. I had to redefine myself as well. Uh, and uh, I went on different dates. I tried doing different activities. I did like. Uh, rock climbing at one point, um, and none, none of it really seemed to click until I met this homeless guy on the street one day uh, in one of, like, in Baltimore as I was on a date with another person, and he, uh, you know, he, he asked for some spare change, you know, and I got to know him a bit more, and he, he told me, you know, his sad story, which, you know, was a fabricated lie, but there were actually glimmers of truth in it, as I later did some research and found out about him when I found out about his lie, but, uh, like, like that, that's all superfluous detail, but the thing is, was that, uh, it, it did help me move forward uh, in my life and sort of grow up as an adult uh, and to the, like the next stages of like my adulthood and just being a more like mature, self-actualized and responsible 
you know, a hopefully morally upstanding human being. Uh, and at that point, I like you know concepts like self-care and the care for others and social responsibility uh began to pervade into you know the sphere of my thinking uh and uh the color pie was still in like rich into like my mindset like i had been living like since 14 to 21 you know uh six years of my life thinking about the color pie acting alongside like certain kinds of tenets of the color pie and then like from 21 to like 25 even going on with that as like the mono red guy that uh i couldn't help but just think like you know you're you're mono white and uh at this point I had actually almost stopped playing Magic. Like I, I barely played the game at all. I was busy, like in my attempt to to overcome grief, uh, I just abandoned the game altogether. Uh, I was doing other things. I was playing like Hearthstone at the time, and so uh, I just sat there in my collection. I had like a collection of Power Nine pieces, uh, lots of old cards uh, that I just decided that like you know these are collecting dust i can at least turn this into money that i can be using for other activities that i would be doing so i sold all that but i kept the white cards because uh i felt like you know that would be like a remembrance of a past life that i lived as i figured that i would move away from magic at this point right and and that would and this would be like the end of my chapter of my career in magic uh wow yeah it it sounds so I mean, normally when people talk about, you know, kind of the color pie and their own kind of personal alignment with it, a lot of times it has to do with people who are, you, you know, they've, they've got maybe a certain set of play styles that they have great affinity for, or maybe there's, you know, a, kind of the, the idea or the theme of how something plays in the context of magic is the thing that draws them to it. I don't hear a lot of of instances personally uh, where like people, you know, take it kind of outside the context of magic where, you know, like what it sounds like to me is that you you kind of really picture yourself as like a white mage in the context of magic, but outside of that context as well. Yeah, yeah. Though, granted, I think I'm more of a blue mage than anything else. But <laughs> I mean, like, I'm, I'm very obstinate about being identified as blue. But yeah, like, I like to live as how I play. I mean, like, it's really funny because, like, um, there's a D and D set, D and D Magic: The Gathering crossover set coming up later this year, and, and this might be a good segue in, uh, of some sorts. But like, personal identity and playing Magic is really important to me uh like and and personal identity and playing anything like if i'm playing like an rpg like a western rpg like skyrim or like cyberpunk right i i don't want to be someone else i want to be me uh and that might be like a form of egoism in a way that i love myself so much that any version of game that i play i want to be myself uh and it's weird because like i think it was because like in my younger years i looked to games and gaming as a form of escapism to escape from my reality but uh because i but because of that one critical focal point where that form of escape that form of escapism forced me to confront my reality. Now I'm living this point in my life where I don't want to escape from reality. I just want to continue just being myself across multiple different realities that I play in. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, that's a lot to, to unwind and unpack. It's, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, the, I'm, I'm sure no one was particularly expecting that about how I ended up being the mono white guy. But yeah, it's, uh, like I said, I, <laughs> I mean, I think in a reductive sense, a lot of people go, wait a minute, you're not Michael Levine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's another personal identity crisis. Right. Um, I mean, Michael and I have talked about why he, why he has played mono white, um, himself i mean he's he's a huge fan of legacy death and taxes you know his his fan favorite card is lin civi and i'm really glad that he's like you know putting an effort to make lin civi work i mean i i can't say that like in the in the archetypes of players that i am truly a spike uh simply because of the fact that like what i choose to play isn't based on a uh competitive like uh like paradigm it's based on more of a personal aspect instead that i chose to play white because uh i see myself as that color and i want to express myself playing that color in a format that's about self-expression which is commander right. um and so i'm not playing like timna thrasios because it's not white and i'm not playing timna thrasios also because it's like i have no i, I see no relationship to timna and thrasios uh at, between me and and the deck itself like uh and this also goes back to like when to that mindset of when i was seven years old i can do anything if i put my mind to it uh i found a job uh just teaching myself software development uh and now i'm working as a senior qa engineer now uh like it it still feels to me in a way that a lot of the things that I do, uh, it was by choice and not by necessarily like, because I fit for that role. Uh, I forced myself to be mono red. I, I feel like in some ways I am forcing myself to be mono white. Uh, and so the, the idea of just making something work is just more or less because I want it to work and it, and it works. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Pongo, are you yes, still there? I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, like that, that was I'm a long epic, right? <laughs> well, no, it, it's 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 really interesting, and I I I think that, like I was saying, um, I, like for me personally, my you know adjacency to magic is is a lot um more contained. I would say where you know my my experience of it stays contained within the world of magic, and a lot of me outside of magic is something that's separate and that's kind of i you know part of why it it feels like an escape because it's something that is you know something that i keep separate from myself um but yeah i, I agree with you there cobblepot i think that uh, my sort of involvement with magic if you want to put it that way is uh certainly much more of a recent thing compared to uh charles's epic you know which I think is, as far as epics go, like somewhere between Beowulf and Gilgamesh. Um, <laughs> but um, oh my god, <laughs> yeah, I'm picturing Grendel now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, sort of over the long thrust of my life, um, magic was kind of like, uh, in some ways, like punctuated my life at various different places as opposed to 
being sort of like one long epic to return to that sort of uh, image. Uh, so as far as magic is concerned, I, I, I can, the earliest memories I have are, you know, as a, as a kid, um, you know, my sort of one of my closest friends at the time uh, who lived on my street uh, when, where I was growing, where I, where I was growing up, uh, his older brother played magic. And I think this is probably a very, very common story for a lot of people. And probably a lot of our viewers will have experienced this, this sort of same introduction to magic. Uh, you know, you're hanging out with your, your close friend, you go over to his place. Um, and you know, you're, you're pretty young, like seven, eight, nine, maybe. Um, and you know, you're doing whatever, playing video games, playing with action figures, you know, who knows. And then, uh, you know, the, the really cool older brother who you like look up to, uh, your friend's older brother, you know, brings out these magic cards and is like, Hey, you know, like, let me, let me show you this. It's really cool. And, you know, and there you are, you know, playing like this mono green deck and like, you know, he summons like a bunch of squirrels and then makes those squirrels into like 10 tens and then gives them flying. And you're like, what is going on? How are these squirrels so powerful and, and how can they fly? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it just it quickly captures the imagination, I think, uh, especially as, uh, you know, a, a young a young guy at the time who was like super, super invested in, and, you know, was like reading voraciously and uh, super invested in like fantasy and like all those types of novels, science fiction and, you know, had a, a very rich uh, interior life uh, and imagination. That's really so, cool. So, what, you know, like, what time period was this? What, what was what was the first set? Oh, this would have been. Saw? Yeah. So that's a good question. So the first set I remember seeing, and I don't know that this was like the most recent set that had been released at the time, uh, was like the Urza's block stuff, which is where I, I saw Ooh. all the squirrel stuff from. Right. All the original squirrel stuff, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I even remember like Guy's Cradle and stuff like that from back then, you know, back when those cards were not as absurdly expensive as they are today. Uh, and, you know, people were actively opening them up from for booster packs. Uh, and, you know, I, I actually had a few magic cards that were gifted to me at the time. Uh, you know, nothing crazy, nothing super, super exciting. I look back on them not too long ago and I said, wow, uh, my older brother's friend lucked out by not giving me any anything that would suddenly or, or you know, just out of nowhere kind of become utterly broken and, and super valuable. Uh, so, so good for him, I suppose. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so that was like, I think my earliest exposure to magic, but I never, it never, like, it didn't soup, like bite me. Like I didn't get the bug just then and there. I I enjoyed it, but you know, I enjoyed a lot of different things and I was like super into video games and I was super into other games. Um, I think, you know, before I even really got into magic again, and like, I guess you could say like kind of actually sort of got into it. Um, I started getting into other games like, you know, Warhammer 40k. Uh, mm. And, you know, I, I played a, quite a bit of that. I played that for a couple of years. Uh, I was super into the Necrons. I don't know. Uh, are you, know. you, yeah, are you excited about the Magic the Gathering uh, Warhammer 40k crossover? Uh, I'm pretty excited. I don't, I don't actually play Warhammer 40k anymore uh, mm. or Warhammer. It's, you know, it's, I think it's impossible really to, to have Warhammer. It's not impossible, but like, you know, I don't quite have the means to to collect Warhammer 40k and Magic and and also <laughs> whiskey at the same time. Um, <laughs> but, Something's um, gotta give. 
something's got to give indeed. Um, but yeah, I was really into Warhammer 40k back in third edition. And uh, so that was probably when I was kind of just starting high school. I remember, you know, my new friends that I'd met at the time, we kind of just decided out of nowhere to like all start playing Warhammer 40k. And we were playing Yu-Gi-Oh at the time too, but like never very seriously, you know, kind of like when you're a kid and, you know, you, you kind of like played Pokemon and you kind of made your own rules up and you mm-hmm. were playing Yu-Gi-Oh and like you were you know using some combination of the official rules and then like, you know, like whatever they were doing in the TV show at the time. Um, which, yeah, if I like look back on that now, I, I like shake my head. I'm like, <laughs> that's like not at all how you played that game. Um, but uh, I, I digress in any case. So, so yeah, so I was really yeah, into... Yeah, I never imagined that Kuribo had all those abilities that he right. made up. And I was like, he's got to be bullshitting, man. Oh, yeah. Like, Yugi was just the master bullshitter, right? And, <laughs> and it's incredible how like the game just like permitted just him. him do it. Just <laughs> yeah. let him do it. Yeah. If only I could do that on Magic Arena, be like, you know, this, uh, this, uh, this, um, uh, this Dune Traveler uh, is actually also a Sarah Ascendant, and since you know my life total is like you know thirty or something like that, I can attack with him as a six six. Well, Don't you just have to me, clench your, your butt hard enough, and then <laughs> anything can happen. Uh, yeah, but uh, so yeah, so I was super into those games, and then you know probably a little bit later in high school, uh, you know a few of my friends started playing Magic again, and if I remember correctly at the time. That was sort of like when like Mirrodin stuff was coming out. Mm-hmm. That would have and been so, 2001. Yeah, so it was like a little bit after, like maybe towards the tail end of Mirrodin block, and we were kind of like just starting to acquire some of these cards. And I like remembered all the rules of magic, and I remembered, you know, basically everything that I had done, so it was really easy to get back into it. But like really what captured my attention was like, um, seeing Darksteel Colossus and being like, what the heck is this magic card? Uh, Darksteel Colossus, that blew my mind. Oh, oh I, my god. It, it was yeah. mind-blowing for me. I saw that card, I'm like, indestructible? Yeah. What? How do yeah. you get rid of this card? It's uh, impossible. Yeah. That card was like the holy grail for yeah. the kids in our neighborhood, too. Uh, that was the card that, like, made me, like, want to believe in this game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, around that time, I was also kind of getting a little bit into magic fiction as well. Some of the books, um, because, you know, I was always really into uh, science fiction and also really into fantasy. And I just read so much and so quickly that I would like often just go to the the bookstore and I would kind of just like sit down reading books. And, you know, I'm sure they really appreciated that because I didn't really buy anything, but I would read entire books while I was there. So, you know, uh, I was kind of like a criminal too i guess i was i was a badass I mean, like I mean, you I charles was, <laughs> i was i was uh i was reading i was i've read the cycle of the mirrodin books and i actually oh, yeah. tried to build a solarian deck solarian was the was the sunburst creature that can double its counters right right uh from fifth dawn because he was on the cover or or not he but it was on the cover of the fifth dawn novel and so that was uh, and that was the only incentive for me to want to build a deck was because it looked cool on the on the on the cover and i want to make it into uh into a deck i mean that's like if that's not if, if that's not casual magic i don't know what is you know um, oh yeah for sure i mean like I just wanted to play my my crawl worms when I was a kid, my you know my squirrels with coat of arms out. Yeah. You know, then oh I got a little bit God. older, and I just wanted to cast Dark Steel Colossus. Mm-hmm. It's and, so uh, it's so interesting to me um, to to look at Mirrodin Block 
and see the different perspectives of ways that people can experience it. And I mean, because absolutely, you know, dark steel Colossus and, you know, the, the helm sword and shield of Cauldra, all of these like janky, fun, huge effects. And at the same time, this is the same block where we had skull clamp and affinity. (laughs) Yeah. The artifact lands. Yeah. 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 People Uh, who actually played magic. I got, I got a funny story. Right. Right. But those things happen at the same time. Yeah. I got a funny story about that because Pongo, I was, I was also like you because I want to play crawl worm. Also, there was also that one card, uh, that was, uh, the one that you can like flashback that can create like a six, six worm token. I forgot that what, what it was called. Like, I think call of the, the worm, worm or call yes. the worm or something like that. Right. Or mm-hmm. roar of the worm. Roar of the worm. Right. And yeah. And, and I built a mono green deck where all it did was just cast worms. Like I didn't cast mana dorks because mana dorks, were other forms of creatures this this was a worm deck in my i think like 12 or 13 year old mind i was like look this is no no, no. i had to be like 14 or 13 14 i was like look this is this is a worm deck why are there elves in a worm deck i this is just worms right and right. what's really funny was that it didn't get across in my head that you needed some way to ramp into the worm. Otherwise, you're just, you know, picking a god and praying that you draw a land each of your turns so that you can finally cast Roar of the Worm. And you also had to draw that as well because it was just all lands and Roar of the Worm. I mean, uh, like, my decks back then probably had like 30 lands in them because I didn't have that much of a collection. Yeah. So, yeah, I got 30 land Roar of the Worm deck was certainly I got one my, I could have put together. Yeah, I got my butt kicked, right, by my friend Jason. And then I, I went back to the drawing board and I was like, look, all right, I'm going to do this the Yu-Gi-Oh way where I just start playing cards without paying for them. And I looked into, like, like I went I went on that night to, like, look up a bunch of different magic cards from Mirrodin. And that's when I stumbled across Affinity. It's like, oh, okay, right? Like, I did some math and figured some stuff out that, like, I can cast this Mirror Enforcer on turn two, and that would be normal, right? Uh, like, from a player who played Yu-Gi-Oh, getting a 4-4 on turn two just seemed normal to me. <laughs> and, then, mm-hmm. and, then, and then sticking a cranial plating and, like, you know, swinging for, like, lethal in two turns was also pretty normal because it's like, hey, you know, here's a Blue-Eyes White Dragon or whatever, or Summon Skull. Summon Skull was more competitive back then. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like, uh, it just made sense. And then I remember like going to the cafeteria in high school and playing with these other kids and, uh, and in, in our lunch periods and they would be like, bro, that's, that's, that's not, that's not normal. That's, that's very degenerate. <laughs> and I was like, so, so I quickly saw both. I quickly experienced both like the casual end of magic and, and then the more like competitive end with like Ravager affinity. Um, right. It was great. Oh, I, and do you remember platinum angel? Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. card, like that card also blew my mind. It's like, what, yeah. how can you beat this card? Right. Yeah, another unstoppable machine. <laughs> it, it, I mean, that to me represents very much kind of the schism that you see uh, between, you know, even, even within just the, the EDH world, between mm-hmm. kind of the hyper-casual and the hyper-competitive and how they, they it's the same card pool. And yet, <laughs> the, you know, just through the nature of context and kind of what the, the kind of the, 
the world vision is that people are bringing to it. You know, you have the people who are, they're doing, you know, roar of the worm decks and you have other people who are, you know, doing affinity. And I, I think that that's really cool that it can serve people in both of those ways. Yeah. yeah. And, and if ever you want to have like just an absolutely incredible experience, I don't know if you happen to just have like kind of that random box that a lot of people have around of just like sort of like old cards that are like not particularly well sorted. Um, ideally like the older, the better, you know, like cards oh, yeah. that you had as a kid draft those, like draft those with friends, just like oh, your old God cards like all the white bordered cards like these like random cards you know and you'll have so much fun because like your deck won't make any sense but every card you play will have so much sentimental value because it'll just bring back memories right like land leeches how do i play this card yeah so i i yeah i did that with a buddy of mine uh a little while ago now you know in the before times and uh it was just like what an incredible experience you know your cards are you know, by like any objective metric, pretty terrible, but like, so are, so is everyone's. So, so it kind of mm-hmm. works out, right? It's like right. a draft format in and of itself. Um, I and it's it. kind of just a hodgepodge of everything. I don't know what you would call it. Maybe like, uh, you know, the, the good old Last days the draft. Past. Yeah. The good old days. <laughs> the good old back, days draft. Back when someone assembling Caldro would just be the arch enemy. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I guess after that, because I didn't actually fully get back into magic, even even then in high school, um, you know, there was like a whole this in-between stage where, um, you know, I kind of got really into music um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I guess like sex, drugs and rock and roll kind of took over and uh, I wasn't really playing wasn't really, music, like, like were you about a magic. music performer? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I used to play in a number of different bands. Um, you know, all, all, um, like nothing super professional, obviously mm-hmm. just kind of like garage bands and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, nonetheless, uh, you know, we were, we took it seriously. Right. Um, so, so that was a huge part of my, my life, uh, you know, throughout like the end of high school and then, uh, in, in college and, and university. Um, and I think it was through, you know, one of, one of a friend of mine who I, I used to play music with, you know, invited me over one day and, you know, we used to just like hang out and, you know, drink beers and stuff like that. Um, and, and one day he just kind of like busted out his magic cards and he was like, yo, do you, do you know this game? And I'm like, heck yeah, I know this game. Like I used to play this like way back in the day, um, you know, back in high school and stuff. And he's like, oh, like I have a few decks you want to play. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Why not? Uh, so, you know, we started playing and, uh, you know, we had a few other friends there, uh, some, some of the other people we played music with and, you know, some of them were interested in playing and others weren't, but it was okay. Cause we were all just having a good time and vibing and, and, you know, sure enough, like we would do this, you know, every so often. And then it kind of just like, I caught the bug, I think right then and there where I was like, man, I really just like want to actually like start getting some cards and, and building my own deck rather than just like playing my, my buddy's deck repeatedly um and you know like bashing them against each other and stuff like that so so i started like acquiring my own cards finally and and this was probably oh i want to say around the time of like journey into nyx like the nyx block that's when i would say i kind of like got 
really back into magic and and like that's when it sort of stuck um so you know at, at that same time um we were playing a lot of multiplayer uh because you know we were kind of just playing like kitchen table casual and you know at a certain point i like i don't know how i did it but i kind of just like picked up on like oh like blue green is like th- these are the decks that i like to play i, I really like to play like control elements and i also you know like still want to be playing like my big creatures and stuff like that because you know that was still always like part of my 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 sort of dna as a magic player wanting to play that Mm. stuff um you know the the sort of inner timmy if you would Um, that's interesting so you know i i was realizing like oh hey this works pretty well in multiplayer because like i i like the the games are just slower even if we're playing with 20 life you know we weren't playing commander we were playing like 60 card multiplayer with like casual decks um you know like one person was playing four soul rings in his deck and like you know somebody else and like emrakul and like crypt Gasts, and i was playing you know sure enough the, the strategy that i just happened to kind of funnel into and and this will be funny for anyone who who used to play commander like you know not that long ago a few years ago but i was like oh man i'm gonna play this this card from journey into nyx that i just happened to have because this is the set that i got into prophet of crucifix <laughs> and so, so, I, so I built the Prophet of Crufix deck in 60 card multiplayer, you know, obviously with multiple Prophet of Crufixes and just like ramp into Prophet of Crufix. And then I got, you know, um, like Sylvan Primordial because I was like, man, I can flash this card in and like with like multiple opponents, I'm like blowing up a thing from each of them and getting more mana. And then like my Prophet of Crufix is untapping my lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was like, wait, if I combine this with Deadeye Navigator then I just destroy everything and like ruin everyone's day and win. And I'm like, this is everything I want to be doing in magic. And, and sure enough, you know, everyone was kind of getting fed up with that. Um, but we didn't really have like a, a sort of social contract, if you would, that, that could make it so that we like didn't play these things. If, if you know what I mean? Right. Cause this um, was still just 60 card. This wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Right. And like somebody was playing four soul rings. Right. And like occasionally they would ramp into like a super fast Emrakul and it was like, well, that's pretty degenerate. Um, but you know, like if I did my thing, great. And like, I certainly was able to like win a lot of games that I probably shouldn't have just off the back of like how powerful that engine was. If, if a game goes long enough um, and then, you know, combine it with blue control. Right. Um, so it was sort of like around this time that we like discovered commander and, and we were like realizing, oh, you know, in commander, like a lot of these cards are banned. Um, and that like kind of makes sense. And like, you know, you can only play one Sol ring and you can only play one of this and one of that. Um, and we were like, you know what? Like, this seems fun. And this is like a nice break from this like weird degenerate, whatever kitchen table magic we're playing. So we started getting into, into commander and the first commander I ever built was uh, Krufix, God of the Horizons. Yes. And, uh, yes. I mean, Pro- Prophet of Krufix was legal at the time, right? So, right. like, obviously, I kind of just ported over my 60-card deck to that. And instead of playing Sylvan Primordial, I was playing things like, you know, Prime Speaker Zagana, the draw mm-hmm. a ton of cards, and, yep. you know, like, Deadeye Navigator combos with, uh, you know, Palancron that I bought for, like, you know, $10 off of somebody, um, you know, the good old days. Right. And then, so, you know, it was funny how, like, even then, there was sort of like, I, I guess, you know, CEDH wasn't as developed back then as, as it is now. So, like, a lot of these kind of like blue green 
mid-rangey is kind of value pile decks um you know felt kind of pub stompy and like could like theoretically approach like what it felt like to be playing cedh in a lot of situations you know they it wasn't quite on the same tier as something like zur or jaleva or you know like derevi and stuff like that at the time um or you know boonweaver carador and stuff like that right uh, but you know like if the game happens to go long enough like you're playing way better cards than everyone <laughs> uh and and you know Krufix the god certainly lets you have some really big turns where like you play you ramp into him and then he ramps you into tooth and nail and then you kind of just win resolving one sorcery um right so my, my lgs actually uh before cedh was a thing and when commander was still you know relatively new and it's widespread adoption um my lgs had kind of a not really a tournament. They would call it a tournament, but there would be like, you know, 10 people that would show up and people would be playing, you know, the, the first time I went to this tournament, I actually brought a uh, crew fix and right. um, it was just a, like a, a crew fix deck that ran um, is forbid the, the buyback. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. It is oh, the yeah. buyback. <laughs> we, right. We all so, played that card. Right. So it ran forbid and um, the, the, the bounce spell that has buyback as well. You're gonna have to capsize. Yep, capsize mm-hmm. and like yeah. just all of that stuff, and just make it such that you're classic. Nobody could resolve any spells, and that was, you know, and so like whoever you know whoever would win those little mini tournaments would would just get uh, credit at the store, right? So it was like, mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, but I want mm-hmm. I want to I I want to go and get that that food chain that's there for ten bucks. And yep, because ten bucks is a lot of money, so I had to save up to get that food chain. And um, yeah, I think I was playing mono red at the time, and uh, for the sixty card casual kitchen table decks, uh, we built. I built a mono red burn deck, and I was following along the philosophy of fire by uh, Mike Flores, that was posted on the Wizards of the Coast uh, website. Mike Flores didn't come up with Philosophy of Fire, so whoever's listening to it, I know it's not Mike, but someone else, but he cited it uh, in his article for Magic the Gathering's website at the time. And I was really into uh, playing Burn. I liked, There was a point in my life where I was actually homeless, and uh, I was couch hopping from place to place, and uh, I was crashing over at uh, my friend Jason's place, and he had a cube back then and uh he just picked up all the red cards and we built two separate red decks and we just burned each other in three minute like uh magic games that went over and over and over and over again and it was really cathartic it sounds like a standard from two years ago yeah yeah i mean it was fun for us because it was just you know hey you know shuffle up and go again right Uh, i remember so like i was talking to pongo about this earlier before we aired uh phil gallagher uh and i actually went to the same college we went we both went to the university of maryland college park phil was studying the classics i was studying philosophy and uh he was running the magic the gathering club with annalise faustino who is also uh who top aided at the SEG Invitationals uh, a while back. Uh, she's a huge Tron player. Uh, and uh, back then, like, I met her when she was a freshman and she was just getting into Commander and I built her, like, an Edric Simic deck. Uh, if you guys ever want to tease her, just bring up 
like the the mention of the card night soil and and, and that'll rustle her yes <laughs> I, I used to play yeah. that card unironically yeah, yeah. Right. no no, no. Yeah. there are so many people who who play that card unironically emphasis on the unironic part that right. when you like that when you like at them and be like that card is a bad card why are you playing it right Annalise is one of those kinds of players like don't criticize me and my card choices <laughs> 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 it was it was it was it was like the inside joke of our Magic the Gathering Club. Uh, and and Phil 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 was getting into death and taxes at the, at the time. This is like before Thraben University existed. And I was his uh, mon- his mono red guinea pig because Red Burn at the time was uh, probably like the hardest matchup for death and taxes. Uh, and so we often like you know played a lot of games, uh, and I like experimenting with my decks. I actually built a coin flip deck way back when with Kark's Thumb and Game of Chaos, and it it would annoy Phil to no end because I had like you know a I think like a 50% on average win rate with the deck, and it was just absurd, right? Because all I did was just flip coins uh, with the deck, and if I resolve Game of Chaos, I had like I think like a 30% chance of winning the game with Kark's Thumb by just going by winning like five coin flips consecutively in a row which would just kill phil uh and phil's like you know just you know i play thalia and i lose (laughs) and he's like come on charles play with a real deck please um but yeah, my first commander deck, uh, I got introduced to commander when I was in college, and the first commander deck that I built was Scion of the Ur-Dragon. I I was like, uh, and this is really funny because the first pre-con I ever bought when I got into Magic was back in Fifth Dawn with the Sunburst deck. Because I just figured, like, if, uh, like, let me just play with all five colors and see, you know, what is there to, to mess around with. Uh, and I enjoyed Sign of the Air Dragon. I was a huge fan of Kamigawa, so I had all the Kamigawa dragons in there, and I played with that. Uh, and gradually, you know, I shifted more into, like, my mono-red paces when I finally decided to associate my color identity to just mono-red. Uh, and I built, like, I, th- I want to say, like, seven different mono-red decks. Uh, I had uh, Goto Bandit Warlord, obviously, uh, Kikijiki, Duretti, Scrap Savant, Zozu the Punisher, uh, Kumano, Master Yamabushi, uh, and uh, Skyfire Kirin. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think what was the seventh one. Uh, I'm just losing my mind over here. Uh, it's the it's the one from Saviors of Kamigawa where its power and toughness is equal to the greatest hand size amongst opponents you control. Uh Oh man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it was that one. It was it was three mana, and I and I ran him in a wheels deck. It was really fun because it was just like you know I, I wheel fortune, set his power back to seven again, and then just swing at someone and like give him trample and haste, and he was three mana, so you can like desperate ritual him out like on turn one, right? And just you know beam at someone, be like you, you're dead, right? Um, so. That, that 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 was pretty fun uh, and you know each one of them i had like a personal connection with in terms of how i built them like the kiki jiki deck was uh it was exceptional in this case because like kind of like those high powered insane games that you were playing pongo like uh kiki jiki was my way of being like you know you did like who who cares about blue like you know screw blue right uh blue blues for blues the training wheels for magic players uh who don't know how to use a counter spell on the stack because i was a guy who was like you know 
reiterating or like shunting because back then deflecting swat didn't exist you had to actually pay three mana to cast it okay uh and 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 there was ricochet trap as well and i would have like these really like complicated stack wars uh not stacks but like stack wars Mm because i wasn't mono white back then and and i actually played on the stack uh and and do and like doing trigger manipulations you know uh i was running cards like um was it price of glory right wars toll citadel of pain one of my favorite things to do in my zozu deck was actually cast thieves auction because for most players like they see thieves auction as a chaos card but when i cast thieves auction my first pick is tunnel ignis uh, and so for those of you who don't know, these Auction is a card that basically exiles all non-token permanents on the battlefield, and then players begin to draft those permanents, with you being the first player who gets the first pick. Um, you get the first pick and you put the card onto the battlefield, right? And so if you pick Tunnel Ignis, Tunnel Ignis is, uh, has the triggered ability uh, when... Uh, a land enters the battlefield uh, under an opponent's control. If another land entered the battlefield under that player's control, Tunnel Ignis deals three damage to that player. And it, and it was asymmetrical. So by picking Tunnel Ignis, you basically asserted the fact that like anyone who picks a land from here on out might just die this game. Because by the time you cast these Auchan, you have reached like s- some critical mass of players who've ramped out their lands that they will just die if they start getting their lands back and then what you do is that you know you pick zozu you pick ankh of mishra so now they're taking seven for each land that they pick and what you're doing now is that you're just taking all their non-land permanents forcing them to pick lands and you're usually pretty smart about how you draft because you want to pick uh permanents from the player who is least likely to die if they were to take lands so that they end up with nothing uh, but lands and the other players are just dead because they had chosen lands. Uh, and I really love that card because the mileage of Thieves Auction was only only was good based on the player who casted it. And for me with like my whole personal identity issue, it was like this was like my signature spell. This like the way that I built most of my casual EDH decks is that there was a quote unquote signature spell that like ended the game. Right? Uh like in I had like a mono green Omnath deck and the whole point of that deck, most people when they when they played it, they just made Omnath big and they attacked with them. The way that I played it was that I used Omnath as a mana battery so that I would go infinite with it and cycle through my whole entire deck, play Primal Command or or like loop it with uh with Kozlek, but, uh Butcher of Truth to mind slaver lock everyone for the rest of the game and I used Harrow to untap my lands so it was such a convoluted Rube, Rube Goldberg machine that I just set up just so that I could mind slave everyone in mono green <laughs> uh, so yeah yeah th- those were my decks uh yeah sounds like what Richard Garfield had in mind. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of Richard Garfield uh, and uh, Barry Reich and uh, Mark Rosewater. Like I, I, I'm a huge fan of game design. Uh, when I talked to Justin Gary about designing games, he was like, you know, uh, he he said that like the important thing about game design and in a way, this conversation is actually kind of fruitful for that. Is that don't ever forget where you started. Like, what got you to play this game? Because while you're in this game now as a competitive player, right, uh, what what got people to play in this game was the Darksteel Colossus, the World Slayers, the Platinum Angels uh, back in the day, right? The, the Roar of the Worms. Uh, that's that's and- why I wanted to be kind of really clear about 
drawing the the clear line there that you know, there's there's more going on than maybe our individual experience and the people who are designing you know just looking at Mirrodin block for instance they're they're not just designing for any one experience but they're designing for a spectrum of experience and mm-hmm. even though like as we traverse through that we're experiencing maybe only a sliver of that spectrum there's a whole bunch of other people having a different of ex- different kind of experience of it and that's worth acknowledging and appreciating very yeah. true and sometimes yeah. they print cards and you know it's just you can invoke the meme like nobody liked that yeah <laughs> a whole breacher yeah. <laughs> being a good example <laughs> oh my god whole breacher what that's the a good hell card. i like that card <laughs> I think yeah, we I, like that card. I, I, I don't mind that, putting it on the stack myself, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't like it when somebody else does. Oh man! Uh, look, I play mono white. That card has no effect on it. Me. Has it has zero <laughs> effect. It might right, as well have right. no text. Yeah, white, white yeah. isn't able to draw cards, so it doesn't. It just yeah. it just means you don't need to play your own Spirit of the Labyrinth. Yeah. Although it, it, it does still kind of suck for you when they play the wheel. Afterward. When they play the wheel, I, that is the only thing that I'm afraid of, right? But if I see them play that card, I'm just like, okay. As long but, as you don't have like a wheel in hand, I'm okay with this. Right, that further incentivizes running Spirit of the Labyrinth so that they're mm-hmm. disincentivized from, from trying to pop that wheel off. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Spirit of the Labyrinth is a great card. I I, I really love that card a lot. Uh, the flavor text like really resonates with me because um, teaching was like a huge passion of mine. I mean, it was one of the reasons why I study philosophy. I, I worked as a tutor, uh, and before uh, the pandemic, uh, I actually volunteered and uh, taught kids how to play magic uh, at this uh, uh, school. Uh, it wasn't like a Montessori school, but it was something like a hybrid in a way uh, in DC. I worked with an old friend of mine from the Magic the Gathering Club who was a teacher there. And it was it was a great way of like, you know, teaching kids a lot of different concepts like, you know, critical thinking, but also, you know, uh, some solid like life lesson aspects like right. you know there was this one kid who felt like he 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 couldn't overcome you know this giant 55 shivan dragon right and it's like okay you know just take one thing at a time you know problem solve it but like don't 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 feel overwhelmed by this one thing and walking him through that uh was very enriching um, I guess for me personally, and I hope that it wasn't reaching for him, but yeah, working with kids was pretty great like that. Um, and so like when you read the flavor text of Spirit of the Labyrinth, uh, it, it really resonates with that idea of like an instructor who, who really drills you on, on the values of, of patience and learning. Right. I had uh, to, I had to look it up. It's students at the Dakasha Academy learn that being sent to study with her is a lesson in of itself. Yeah. Uh, Although, and I feel like. Isn't the flavor of drawing a card supposed to be that you're learning things? Yeah. And she's teaching you the fact that uh, that you have to sort of learn things one at a time, right? Uh, literally one at a time, one turn at a time. Uh, and that's really cool. Uh, she's also the spirit of the labyrinth. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. That flavor feels weird to me. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I don't see the sort of link to like the greek mythology like was there a famous teacher in a 
you know, in, in the labyrinth? No, I don't think so. I mean, like, the labyrinth yeah. was designed to to basically trap to this minotaur. Pr- prison people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was made by Icarus's father, uh, and uh, uh, I think it was King Midas. King Midas was the one who basically was like, all right, now that you built the labyrinth, I'm going to throw you in the labyrinth, right? Uh, and uh, they, they, they tried to escape, and Icarus uh, flew too close to the sun, and we all know that story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the Minotaur, I believe, is still trapped in that in that labyrinth. This labyrinth is more of an abstract concept of like labyrinthian uh, like lessons. Like the adjective itself is typically one that like has a really roundabout way of learning something uh, or thinking about something. It's just something really complicated. Like if like Kalapod and I both work as developers, and so like you you see this sometimes when someone writes a really like complicated piece of code that tries to like perform a singular function, and you know we we just look at it as like. You're like you know, you could have just written it this way, and that would have probably saved you like, you know, three extra steps plus some like you know, uh, like in memory <laughs> performance. Right. Right? A good word, a good word for developers to learn is the word elegant. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and so spirit of the labyrinth, and so spirit of the labyrinth represents that idea of like you know, uh, you're learning something very complicated and and, and convoluted. Uh, but coming out of it, you uh, you you reach a deeper understanding of the lesson rather than just being told what it was. That makes sense. It, it to me, it it has a big like Luke Skywalker vibe. Oh where, yeah, with Yoda in the Empire Strikes Back. Sure. Or you know, just with um, you know, when when he's uh, flying with with Ben Kenobi. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's teaching him to use the force, but he has to have the blaster shield down. and can't see what he's doing. He's like, this is so much harder. Why can't you just let me see what I'm doing? And, <laughs> you know, by by taking something away, it learn it, it, you know, kind of forces you to lean on other um, other skills, other aptitudes, other capabilities that you have that aren't the obvious capabilities. So by taking away your ability to draw cards um it forces you to find other ways to gain advantage um Mm -hmm. that are that are there but are maybe less obvious than you know doing a wheel or doing an ad nos or that kind of thing and understanding that and being able to actuate upon that um is one of those ways that when the board is all locked down you're able to find a way to to break parity and and move forward so it's it's i i think I think the lesson cast in that sense makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, this TBH emote. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I, think the, I think the flavor is more that you're kind of like stuck in the labyrinth trying to get to her and you're not learning anything. <laughs> and, and the lesson is that you're screwed. <laughs> and that you're, you're no longer going to... You're, you're screwed until you can get rid of her. I, th- I think I think that is the lesson, right? Is to get to her, right? Is is to find a way to get to her and 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 remove and her you, so that you can cast your wheel. 
<laughs> right. I mean, so so my other favorite one is Eidolon of Rhetoric, and this was really ironic because whenever I uh, spent my time thinking my turns, uh, and someone is asking me what am I doing, uh, because I might take long pauses, I would tell them that I'm contemplating the universe, right? And if you look at the the, the flavor text of Eidolon of Rhetoric, it's really funny because I also, you know, was a philosophy student, so it was like, wow, this card was literally made for me. Um, and I looked it up. So it's, it is the soul of a philosopher who died of starvation contemplating the universe. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I like that flavor. That one makes sense to me. <laughs> the, the inaction has murdered you. Um, yeah. That's a, that's well, a pretty good one. But honestly, so so actually, while we're on this subject, I I feel like you know now that we've gone this far in, for those who are still listening, uh, we might as well be educational here. And one of the things that uh, that I have been thinking about and working on because I hear this a lot, and you brought this up earlier, Pongo, uh, not Pongo, uh, Kyle Pot about breaking parody. I hear that word a lot, and I know that like in the I want to say like three or four years ago when I was explaining stacks to like the students at the uh, University of Maryland um, Magic the Gathering Club and, and bring up this idea of breaking parody, uh, I did not realize how much of a heuristic that it would become. And if anyone's ever read my articles, I am not a fan of heuristics. Uh, heuristics are something that like AIs uh, would use. Uh, there's something that humans invent. Uh, and uh, as humans, we're not really good AIs. Uh, we're good at coming up with other heuristics. And so why try to do something or apply something that a machine would be better at doing when what we're really good at doing is innovating or engineering or thinking within context? And uh, parody breaking, while very good in a lot of cases, is not the end-all be-all. And I had this conversation before with someone else on like uh, a Magic the Gathering game. Uh, they were very, they, they, they were emphasizing a lot about how Yisan breaks parody with Winter Orb, and they seem to have like missed the point of like my uh, my discussion about the fact that. Look, you can sometimes just play Winter Orb just to play Winter Orb. It's not in the sense that, like, like some players will get upset. Uh, and I'm talking about this more in the competitive set, so I'm not, you know, beaming at you casual players. Uh, it's more the idea that, like, if you're... It, and we're going to go into old school here. Uh, uh, Jim Cooney, who is the owner of Dice City Games uh, and organizes a lot of old school Magic events, uh, I Q-drafted with him before and you know in his cube are like all these power nine pieces but there's also Ication Village and if you guys have not heard this card Ication Village is like a six mana sorcery that puts five one one citizens onto the battlefield and this is where the time spiral block references the citizen tokens from because it's from the original card Ication Village right. and the strategy yeah and the strategy back then was to actually play like a glorious anthem or something like that or some anthem effect like well, Crusade, but that's banned now. But uh, you you play that, you play Ication Village, and so now you have 10 power on the battlefield, and then you cast Armageddon, right? 
Winter Orb, in this way, also has that similar function, actually, but it's less committed. Your lands are not gone, it's just that your lands are reduced to untapping one at a time. And the reason why this was relevant was because Wrath of God costed four mana, right? If your opponent, like, taps out prematurely on their turn three, and then you play a Winter Orb with no way to break parity to Winter Orb, but you are on the aggro warpath, right? Your goal was never to break parity, it was to just buy, it was just to time walk your opponent in a color that wasn't blue right and in fact that time walk became a time stretch because and even better than a time stretch because it would take your opponents how many turns before they could finally untap all their lands and cast that wrath of god and by that point they were already dead in the game uh, yeah well, it's and, the same logic as if you're playing like a like a delver deck in legacy and you sideboard mm -hmm. into winter orbs against control decks right like mm -hmm. you're just you're just trying to i mean yeah you're, you're essentially just trying to limit how much yeah. they can use their mana because presumably they're going to be doing something more impactful with their mana than you possibly can. Yeah. They're, they're, At the end of the no, day, that's still, you're still talking about breaking parity though. It, it, it does still mean breaking parity. Correct. Yeah. It, I, I, to me, I don't actually see that as breaking parity because gradually, like if your opponent plays a removal spell or something like that, or your opponent plays a blocker, like the board is not a soft state. It's, like it can be much more complicated than that. Like in the situation that I have, where you have Ication Village with five two twos out, with an uh, considering that you have an anthem effect, right? Your opponent could still have like a five five out, right? And somewhere along the lines, you have to actually draw like a removal spell, not source the plowshares, but something else to get rid of the five five. You could continue attacking. And uh, your opponent can only block one creature at a time through those attacks. And uh, if you like proceed in like a Fibonacci like pattern, right? Maybe your opponent goes down to like one life, and you need that one extra push. Maybe you draw that lightning bolt instead, right? And you play that land and lightning bolt, right? There is no parity breaking there because it's going to like a finite state, right? There is no like hard lock where it's deterministic that you win. It's more the fact that like okay, I have the next three turns sequenced out in terms of what my opponent's ceiling is and sort of what my ceiling is and this is sort of the gamble that i'm making but it's not like a really risky gamble at all uh whereas like i imagine parody breakers as okay this is a this is this is the lock right and this is the advantage that i have against you and it's a really clear-cut advantage that i have against you will you proceed to scoop Otherwise, we can play this out, and I will demonstrate how I beat you in, like, you know, four turns time or something like that. I feel like um, parity breaking doesn't have to be a long term. I, f I feel like that it can be an incremental activity. So the, the idea is that if you are in some sort of a state where you're at parity, then both, you know, both players or all players have an equal opportunity for access to their resources in one way or another and if there is some sort of a stacks effect some you know some sort of an effect that is depriving everybody of some sort of a resource then everyone is experiencing that deprivation equally mm -hmm. and um you can have breaking of parity through you know like a long-term effect that allows you to ignore that Maybe, you know, you have something that untaps at the end of turn, so you don't have to worry about having, like, you know, 
Yeah, something like a wilderness reclamation, right? Yeah, or, or, yeah. or like Urza tapping down a winter yeah, orb or something. Exactly. Right, but mm-hmm. but even but but not even in a per, in a like a perpetual way, but you know, just an incremental way. Finding a land when your opponent doesn't find land that breaks parity between the two of you because you are having access to one more land than your opponent does. It's it's a small incremental thing, but you are you know you still have an advantage contextually over your opponent mm-hmm. just because you happened to draw a land and they didn't. So there's... Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree with you, Cobblepot. I, I think, too, if, you, if we take the Delver example, like playing a bunch of soft counters that tax your opponent's mana even more and let you like replay lands like Days, for example, it, it's a very clear example of breaking parity incrementally as opposed to like through an engine card. New way of saying lands for Days. Yeah, lands for Ooh. days. Oh wow! Ultimately, I think if you're operating better under your your stacks because of you know even just through deck construction, mm-hmm. um, your your goal and and what you're accomplishing is is to break parity on your stacks. Sure, sure. I I can I can concede to that then. Uh but at that point, that seems less to be about what your cards are doing, but what you are doing as a player, and the emphasis would then be not on there needing to be an engine or not on there needing to be a certain combination of cards that you're running, but literally what decisions are you making so that you are, you know, coming out on top of this Armageddon game, not literally Armageddon the card, but like the the concept <laughs> of, of an Armageddon but, game. But why not? <laughs> why not Armageddon the card? Well, well, like actually, I think that's actually kind of like the, the 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 pun or the double entendre of the of the name Armageddon, right? It's it destroys all lands, but that is like sudden death. It is like all right, you know, now we now now we we we, we fight like men to the death. Right? I remember when I was when I was younger. And first seeing Armageddon, um, I had some challenges, you know, conceptualizing how it would destroy all lands, but not destroy all creatures. I was like, mm-hmm. well, sure. wait a minute, yeah. there's no land. Where where are the creatures standing? And you know, like, I had the flavor. Right, right, oh. right. Just because I was trying to you know, think about it in a oh. kind of a literal sense, because I was imagining, because, you know, I was like 13. and you know, it needed to be consistent. Feel like, okay, well, here's the land, and this is where they're fighting, and that's why. Because uh, at this point, too, back in this time, you know, if you had a uh, sea serpent or leviathan or whatever, or um, island fish Jasconius, you couldn't attack an opponent who didn't have islands, because mm-hmm. right. like yep. the water had to extend to where they were for you to be able to attack them with those types of forces. So it was like, okay, so Armageddon, now all the creatures should die, right? And they're like, no, it doesn't say that. Um, yeah, so so before War of the Spark, uh, I had this funny concept of a deck idea, which was uh, playing, was main decking Stony Silence and also packaging Microsynth Lattice in the deck so that I could play Stony Silence and Microsynth Lattice. But the idea was that, because uh, this would be like a super hard lock for most players, then they wouldn't be able to get out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was also before like Force of Vigor existed. So it was really, really hard for your opponent to just, you know, cast something for free and get rid of this lock. Uh, the idea was that you would also be playing Ghostly Prison. So that way your opponents could never attack you because they could never generate the mana to declare attackers. Uh, and 
you would just sit there, look pretty, and just start playing planes. And the reason why you're playing planes is so that you can get Emeria, the Sky Ruin, to trigger to then get back creatures from your graveyard. And you basically would, at some point, just discard a card from your hand because you had too many cards in hand and get back Sun Titan, which had an ETB trigger, and to you get back... back and to bring back more lands, but to also bring back Lean and Relic Order, which can now exile any permanent on the battlefield. And then you get back Archangel of Tides, and you attack with Sun Titan and Archangel of Tides, and your opponents couldn't block because they couldn't pay the one to block because they couldn't produce any mana. Uh, and you kill them with that method. And it takes forever to do, but the funny thing is that you have all the time in the world now that you have this sort of lock on your opponent. You just play draw, pass, go, and they're just waiting for the inevitable to happen. Uh, it was funny, right? Like, it wasn't nice. <laughs> I was... I. The more I think about Ghostly Prison, and the more I play against Najila and Timna, and Yuriko, and, you know, combat-oriented lists, or... Malcolm, lists, and right. Winoda, right? Right. The, the, more, and the more I wonder about, like, <laughs> I wonder what would happen in CEDH if I just ran Ghostly Prison, just to, you know, just for the context where if you're playing in a metagame that is sufficiently mm -hmm. saturated with people that are extracting... A, a good part of the value that their game plan is kind of wrapped up in through being able to attack people. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I'm very much interested in, in giving that a test just yeah, given how much could, of that we have in our metagame. Yeah. So I actually run ghostly prison and sphere of safety and peacekeeper in my Heliod deck for that very thought process. I've been doing that for a really long while. Uh, like since like 2000, 19 or 2020 with playing with power um and uh you can see it on on my heliod list too there there are some disagreements that i've had with people in the heliod discord about yeah. this. yeah uh <laughs> the fact yeah. that it doesn't stop you from attacking other players yeah is kind so, of problematic because like if we're talking well, about a lot of those does. commanders yeah peacekeeper does and i think i would play peacekeeper over ghostly prison if i was interested in that effect but then you're paying one and a white, right? That, every turn. And, right. And that's the and reason. That's kind of rough. But like Ghostly Prison, if we talk about all those commanders that generate value from attacking, you know, you, you can attack other people, first of right. all. But uh, is is yeah. there a point? Um can Najila Najila can attack other people until you generate enough tokens that you can actually send at the Ghostly Prison player without having to pay because they don't get declared as attacking. Yes. So so that's how you play around it. You you uh, send your newly created tokens at the ghostly prison player. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 the Najula player would do that. The thing is is that uh what you're leveraging is similar to like the Marisi type of play where you goad every other player. Uh, it's the the point is is that this isn't sort of a deterrent at stopping your opponent. It's a positional card. For example, you play this, the Tinda player can attack other players, but they can't attack you. That's one less card that they're drawing. If they want to attack you, they're now paying two for a card draw, which is a, which is essentially a tax that they're applying to themselves, like, manually. right? And then when you start pairing it up with other cards like Static Orb, or the Storage Matrix, or Winter Orb, right? they end up budgeting their mana differently, such that it, it has a cascading effect Effect on like the next sequence of their turns, but you're uh, you're playing a white deck, so that 
tip and you're playing a slow white deck, so that implies that you're playing bears. So Timna's probably not attacking you anyway. Like it, it kind of solve. It doesn't solve a problem that you actually have. Well, I don't really play that many creatures in my Heliod deck, actually. I think you probably play more than a lot of like Timna decks do, especially the non-green ones. Um, yeah, you know, like they can send Timna elsewhere, and they probably will have to because you're gonna have like a, you know, a Thalia or a labyrinth, the Spirit of the Labyrinth, or a Rin Wing Mare. Well, I guess Spirit of the Labyrinth's a bad example, but like. You know, yeah. Eidolon or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah, they'll send Krom at the other opponent, right? Like, well, well, Krom can attack in the air. Like, like yes, flying exactly. is such a flying is such a huge effect. But like, in order for them to now want to do that, they do have to pay the two mana. I mean, it's the same thing with not, like Malcolm. Well, to attack you, but they to can attack, attack me. somebody else. They yes, they can attack somebody else, and that's still, in my opinion, still good for you. It's not ideal. Which is one of the reasons why I like Peacekeeper more, but it's once again it's like one of those positional cards that that uh, that funnels your opponent's actions to something else. You're diverting I, their decisions into yeah, somewhere else. I think it's just three mana. Like the Turbo Nas player wins the game, <laughs> if I'm being completely <laughs> honest, um, right. because it does absolutely nothing to interfere with their game plan, really. Because mm -hmm. like. They have one card win conditions. Like they don't necessarily need their card advantage generating commanders. They don't need to use the combat step. And all you're doing is taxing the decks that like theoretically would want to use the combat step to find more disruption. Um, sure, so but you don't want to be the person that they're uh, that they profit off of in finding their cards. Like you don't like even if you want the Timda player to find cards to disrupt you, you still don't want them to attack you. And that's sort of like the whole point of that card existing in the first place. Is they're going to yeah. attack other players, right? Like they're not going to attack you. Like attacking you is not that relevant like when all they're mm -hmm. attacking with is Timna and Krom. And a lot of the time it's just going to be Krom, right? Like I think that's still relevant. That's four points of damage to well, someone else other than you, right? The, that's the a, that's a tenth of, of their life total. Like, Especially right? if that's damage against somebody who is ostensibly going to be threatening a Nas. Yeah. Sure, but like, so if you're playing a deck that cares that much about its life total, chances are you're also not playing Ghostly Prison because you care about being more proactive. Like, extending the game longer just means that you're more likely to take damage, ultimately, I think. You know, I mean, whether well, it is to your own effects or it is to just people not having much to do and spending two mana to attack you. Well, the idea isn't that you're trying to extend the game. It's more the idea, like I said, it's more the idea of funneling your opponent's attacks to something else. Your opponent will rationalize, in my opinion, that they're like, okay, well, I don't want to just spend mana to attack you because I won't have mana to do these other things that I want to do. So I'm going to attack someone else because I still want my attacks to be productive it's part this of like is that fair, but like yeah. at the same time there are still two other opponents to attack if all they care about is attacking to draw a card and not the four damage you know a lot of the time they don't care about that four damage because they're not planning on winning through that axis so like sure. it doesn't matter that you take the four damage or that somebody else takes the four damage it's really all about drawing a card off of timna at the end of the day um well, or some having chrom yeah. play to draw cards when people play multiple spells so like that it's not a reason personally in my opinion it's not a reasonable axis to be attacking because it's not the axis that like the big boogeyman decks are really fighting on like it doesn't really do much against like Thassa's oracle type combos doesn't do much against like underworld breach type combos 
mm-hmm. ad nauseum mm-hmm. combos. Like you're spending three mana to accomplish ultimately very little against a wide variety of decks. I think. I so I I actually do agree with that that the card doesn't do anything against ad nauseum. But this is more, and this now goes into like a philosophy about stacks. Because Michael also has this idea that you want to play stacks that like interact directly with things. Whereas I actually go with like a more holistic approach of stacks. Like I don't want a single stacks piece to be uh divined by my opponent says this is this is the thing this is the this is the anchor point for all the other stack pieces that i need to get rid of rather than instead uh create a collage of different stack pieces that holistically then affects my opponents like the idea of like yes i could play stony silence but this blind obedience plus the storage matrix also effectively renders a lot of like the dock side like treasures coming to play ineffective for several turns over right uh in uh, the same yeah. way, the, the the ghostly prison doesn't do anything directly to stop the adnos, but the rule of law does, right? And then when you have a rule of law, and then you have like say a Thalia, and then you have a ghostly prison out, you know, you're taxing non-creature spells, but you're now also taxing attacks, and then you throw in a suppression field, and now you're taxing activated abilities, and you're 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 engaging with three different axes of action economy from your opponents and them trying to like find a resource to deal with something. But uh and they're and they're all engaging in different ways. Like Thalia, you know, uh incentivizes your players to play creatures over their non creatures. Uh Ghostly Prison incentivizes your opponents to attack players other than you, right? And suppression field though, suppression field just incentivizes you to just not <laughs> to not activate certain abilities that just are no longer worth activating for the price that they're that they now cost to activate uh treasure tokens uh treasure tokens are fine because they're mana abilities them, right? yeah yeah but like something Otherwise, like it would be effect- amazing huh <laughs> if, if it affected mana abilities my lord that would be like the best stacks piece in the format i mean that that, that that's a hard lock right because now you can't <laughs> yeah. tap lands anymore <laughs> right right uh, i guess it would have to say non-land mana abilities but i suppose yeah. that's a little bit unwieldy as, as far as text yeah. goes um suppression field was one hell of a card and this is something that i'll bring up here because i don't think i'll ever bring this up anywhere else uh kami gal was one hell of a set uh, it, like so, so we talked about Mirrodin block. Let's talk about the block right after Mirrodin, because uh, in Kamigawa block we got Hokori Dust Drinker, which is a white shifted version of the blue enchantment Rising Waters, right? Uh, we got Kataki Wars Wage, which is uh, one mana cheaper and one tax less cheaper than uh, the flux. blue, than than the blue enchantment Energy Flux, right? Uh, we got Ghostly Prison, which is literally the white shifted version of prop of the blue enchantment propaganda, right? And then uh, Mirrodin, uh, we had Rule of Law, which was the white shifted version of Arcane Laboratory. Uh, and then right after Kamigawa Block, we went to Ravnica, and Ravnica City of Guilds, we had Suppression Field, right? Like if there was ever like a period of standard where suddenly like white stacks just appeared out of nowhere it was that i mean we even had yosei the morning star that just that had the ability to just said to your opponent skip your untapped step <laughs> right yeah it, it was a very strange uh moment like i and i'm very kind of curious if i could ever like talk to like mark rosewater or whoever worked on the design for kamigawa like what in their mind just made them decide like hey these cards should be white 
<laughs> and and this like in a way they did have Arayo, and Arayo was blue. Yeah, that would have yeah been, yeah that would have been smoking in white. Yeah, I mean it would be insane, but I think that they intentionally made it two separate colors for balancing issues because they're like, okay, well if they want to get the rule of law Arayo combo off, right? They have to do it in two colors instead of one, right? Uh, but it, it was so it was so weird. Uh, like it just seemed to have come out of nowhere because it wasn't like there were people complaining about white. I I think I'm not sure, right? I just started playing Magic around that time, right? But it just seemed like suddenly they were like, yeah, white should just have these abilities. Let's just cut this side of the pie off of blue and give it to white. They could learn let's, from their let's lessons. Let's do that again. Yeah, go I was gonna say let's let's go back to that because I think white could use a get little some bit of counter assistance. spells and get some card draw, right? I don't yeah, think well, it I needs think, counter spells. Well, so. I, I mean, like, I, I don't know that I fully agree. I, I get where you're coming from, Cobble, that, like, it doesn't necessarily need anything in particular. Right. But I would like to see white White's mechanical space kind of increasing. Um, and I think, like, counterspells could be a part of that. So that's where I differ, at least. Um, sure. It doesn't I could have see- to be counterspells, but it's something that would make sense, right? I would appreciate white getting some sort of advantage that's card advantage that doesn't say draw on it that is um such that it would allow you to dig through your deck so you know like look at or you know do something where you're looking at or searching through or you know investigating your deck in some way like the top three cards or something like that and put one of them into your hand and then put the rest on the bottom or you know some effects that that do that sort of thing that don't actually say draw so that they're not susceptible to hull breacher notion thief you know apparently we're getting a white card in strixhaven that says draw three cards in white? i have to in white yeah, yes in white and white i, I yeah. have to imagine that like it says draw three cards you lose the game <laughs> um, no. draw three cards no. and give them to your opponent yeah, draw. Yeah. imagine it like marrow is just like trolling the hell out of us and it was like not just draw three cards, but it's like each opponent draw three cards. Like, <laughs> well, it could also just be a white black card, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Card. I don't know how specific he is when he says white a white card. It, it is possible yeah. that he is talking about a dual colored card. Yeah, it would have uh, to be white black or white red. Yeah, it, I think it would more more likely lean towards white red because uh, white black card draw is slightly different. It's done differently in terms of design implementation. Black card draw is weird in general because um, it, like, I think black now has more of like ever since Dark Confidant was created, they've sort of modeled a lot of like black's card draw design similar to that. Like, there's Twilight Prophet, I believe, and then there's Ad Nauseum, where it's and then then there's like the uh, Black X versions where it's like. Uh, what was it? That blue-black uh, Demir Mythic from uh, that one round that I said a while back where, you know, each player reveals... Uh, right. Oh, yeah. man. It costs four mana. Yeah, yeah. You, you know yeah. what I'm talking about, right? And, right? and so, yeah, and so a lot of these black card draw effects is more, like, even, like, dating back to, like, Necropotence, right? Uh, it's the same thing, where 
your 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 card draw isn't really a card draw. It's more like a cheat than anything else, which also makes sense because it circumvents a lot of those like hate bear effects where they're trying to enforce this strict card draw in the first place. It's the concept of like black uh, amoralism, parasitism, uh, trying to circumvent the rules or laws or morals of mono white. Right. Uh, and so white black card draw would be more of like that type of velocity effect where it could be something like you look at the, like the top X cards of your library and then you can like the kind of like Moonlight Bargain from the original Rathen Cablog where you can look at like the top five cards and you can pay two life for each of them to, to go into your hand. Right. Right. And I can see like a white black version doing something similar to that, where you know you put cards into your hand and you put the rest into your graveyard, and for each card that you put into your graveyard, you gain two life, right? So you look at the top five, and you can you know put any number into your hand, lose two life for each of them, and then put the rest into your graveyard, gain two life for each of those cards put into your graveyard, right? Yeah, I'm just expecting like some big flashy mostly unplayable white mythic that says like you know gain seven life draw three cards like exile a creature like some something ridiculous and it's gonna be well, like look card draw on white but nah, it's and it's for I, commander and yeah it's fine I, because it's on a seven drop for each opponent draw three cards yo that's <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes I mean, I, I, I imagine that it, it might be a rare instead of a mythic, and it will probably be something kind of like, uh, you know that white enchantment where it's like your opponent gains three life and you draw a card, right? It costs five mana to activate or something like that. Armistice. Right. Um, it'll probably be something in that similar type of design where your opponent gains something off of the three cards that you draw. Yeah, I mean... 100% I, I expect it to be uh, if, if it's going to be at a reasonable mana cost then it's going to have to do something along those lines where whereby your opponent benefits somehow mm-hmm. it's pretty much the only thing that makes sense in mono white is it, uh, is it you draw three cards is it target player draw oh it just says draw it says three, cards. Draw it three just, cards it was yeah. just draw three cards oh so. man so it, so it could literally be target opponent draws three cards well no because that would be draws three cards so right. the the, the oh, string, yeah, yeah. the string of text is draw, draw three cards. So it's it's yourself. Man, much speculation. <laughs> it says each opponent may draw three cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like like create three. Like like for each Sneaky. opponent, for each opponent, create a four four angel, and that player may draw three cards. Right. Uh, oh my god! I'm so ready to be uh, trolled like that. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Getting like, cheated. I mean, well, actually, on, on that discussion, how much, like, because uh, cause I had this, I was helping a guy build uh, a uh, a mono-white wrist deck, uh, and we were talking about the subject matter of Mentor the Meek, because I explained to him that, like, I like there, there are a lot of, th- like, clunkiness in the design of Mentor the Meek that I'm not particularly too much of a fan of because uh, we 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 were goldfishing the deck and there was a, and we were on turn three and I could have either cast Mentor the Meek or Spectral Procession. Instead I chose to cast Spectral Procession because I was going to lead up with Intangible Virtue and swing for six, right? Mm-hmm. 
And uh, his point was like, oh, well, you can play Mentor the Meek, and so your next turn, you play a land, and then you cast Special Procession, and you draw a card. And I was like, okay, well, I play Mentor the Meek, I play a land, uh, I cast Special Procession, uh, and draw a card, uh, and I can't swing with Mentor the Meek because at this point, this is like turn four, and a 2-2 will most likely die in this scenario. Uh, so I swing for no damage, right? But I do get one card for three mana, uh, or a total of four mana, actually. Whereas, uh, and off of two cards that I that I use combined together. Whereas in the other scenario, I play Special Procession, right? And then next turn, uh, I play... You know, a land and I play Intangible Virtue, I swing for six two twos that fly and have vigilance, right? And then by the time I would attack on my fifth turn, which would be the turn where, like, in the Mentor of the Meek scenario, I'm attacking with my three one ones, uh, I'd be attacking for another six again. That's a total of 12 cumulative points of damage. That's about a quarter of someone's life total, considering if nobody has been dealt damage by turn four, which to me sounds kind of absurd. And, uh, in the other scenario, where if I had just gone with Venture the Meek first, I'd only be swinging for three. And I got a card off of this whole entire ordeal. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that the card draw was actually worth it to do that. And that was the reason why I favored playing Special Procession over Venture the Meek in that specific scenario. Uh, and so, going back to this with the whole draw three cards, what would White... If White had this thing where it just gifted a player you know, uh, three cards and like, what would white get in return that is worth that, 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 that you could say, you know, or that opponent could say, okay, well, drawing these three cards wasn't worth it. Gain three life. Pongo, you troll. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I would certainly, I think for three cards have to be a pretty major boon. Uh, because you are giving them an Ancestral Recall, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty absurd. So I would expect, you know, if we're scaling, you know, Healing Salve, sort of up to the power level of, of Ancestral Recall, I don't know, gain 20 life maybe? Uh, <laughs> or or like, you can't lose the game this turn, perhaps? Um, or uh, destroy uh, three permanents they control? Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Uh, for each opponent that actually, destroy. that sounds pretty like it would be, it'd be exile. I would think, you know, exile, yeah, exile three, three exile, three permanents. Cause this is one of the things that I think Gavin Verhey was, was saying that they, one of the, the, the strengths that they were envisioning for the future of white was um, being able to interact with permanents in a uh, kind of like unconstrained way. So, they, the examples that he gave was, you know, Sun Titan can return any permanent, not mm -hmm. just, you know, not just creatures, not just enchantments or whatever, but any permanent. Um, or the, um, gosh, I, I, I think of, of Beast Within before I think of whatever the white version of it is, even though the Beast Within, the Beast Within is ostensibly the, the, the color shifted the version. Generous of the gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generous gift. That generous gift is the other one where, you know, white is able to destroy or exile permanence of any color of of any type as well so that that seems consistent to me that if we were to compensate our opponents with three cards for something it would be uh you know giving us wholesale you know removal of of three permanents that that does seem like that would line up 
with kind of the design philosophy that we've seen so far. Right. And, and it makes sense because the green version of that card gives you three lands in addition to destroying three things. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Like it would be a Terastodon in reverse. You know what's funny? Can you imagine this being exile three permanents, target player controls, that player may draw three cards, right? And yeah. do you do you, do you think what's what's so funny about that wording is that it gets through protection and hexproof and shroud? Oh, and it plays like super well with um like your spirit of the labyrinth effect too. Yeah. And you can even target <laughs> yourselves, right? You can target your treasure tokens to just draw, draw three, three cards. cards. Yeah. I'm ready for this. Yeah, let's do it. I didn't know how much I wanted this until just now. <laughs> First you were doom and gloom, be... and then we just like completely reversed that for you, Pongo. We're gonna be so disappointed with whatever the real card actually yeah. is. Yeah, it turns out it's not sure just better what, revelation. Like, Gavin might be hearing this and he'd be like, damn it, I really like that idea too. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, because yeah. I'm three things and draw three cards, it's just like I mean, depending on the mana cost, right? Like, mm-hmm. Oblation is one thing, draw two cards. Yeah. So it, certainly, like, this is already something that we've seen as a card. Like, it's it's not mm-hmm. unprecedented. So, right. so it could be done. Um, mm-hmm. I just worry that, like, if it's, you know, draw three cards, and it's like, maybe then it would be two things. And they're kind of, like, gradually trying to power up Oblation because it's, like, not, it doesn't really see play. Nah, so, like, I think they will go full-on blast. Uh, I don't think it would target land, so it's the problem. Uh, like, Watsi, I think, is really committed to the idea that, like, targeting lands in standard is bad because it's not really friendly for beginner players getting into the game. And that has been, like, sort of uh, the, um, the devil's deal uh that they've made because it's like their decision with like golos and uro and field of the dead and like omnath all centered around the idea that lands was a uh sanctimonious resource that cannot be uh touched or bothered and so uh, because of that these kinds of cards exist now because there's no other way to really interact against them other than to directly confront them rather than to direct rather than to engage with the indirect uh, driving forces that make them so powerful in the first place. Agreed. That being said, you know, draw three cards, that digs them towards more more lands. It does but, dig them uh, towards more lands, yeah. I, I would tend to agree that that card would probably, you know, this, this hypothetical card would not hit lands just because then it ends up having, like, no real theoretical downside. It will always find three targets and, like, okay like you know it's like flood protection for you like it just does so much stuff <laughs> at yeah. that point um the other issue i see is that like design wise this card would probably have to cost like four or five mana um if it's hitting three things i thought I mean, that all white cards had to cost four mana now <laughs> right yeah really? <laughs> like all all of the don't all of the hallmark white cards especially for commander cost uh, three and a white Three yeah. and white, really, really? Yes, like, they all cost three and white. Um, oh, this is news to me. Like, tell me what cards? <laughs> Keeper of the Accord. What What are the three from Commander Legends that were kind of like the hallmark strong white cards? Um, there, there was the. Here, well, we also got the Caldheim one, but the, there's the Court. I can't remember if the Court is two court and Grace. two white. It's two or, and two white. Yeah, two yeah. and two white. So it is four mana, but it's not quite three and a white. 
Um, and then the other white card, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on that one as well. The one that would theoretically see play. Give me a Chroma's Will. I'm working on it. Yeah, yeah, Chroma's Will might be. Yeah, Chroma's yeah. Will is, is yeah. four mana. Yeah. I'm thinking of, of the four mana stuff. To me, these cards are kind of like... Well, well, Court of Grace has a special place in my heart, but like, Keep of the Court is like, eh, it's, it's okay. Uh, I played on the Asian Avengers stream, and and I... I, they left me alone for too long and and I just like crushed them with uh one key like with only one round of keeper of the accord but I just found it that like look I could have cast gift of estates and, and you know would have had a similar effect I I caught up but it was because I was mana screwed in the first place which to me just all of that sounds terrible it was like you know uh the only reason why like my keeper of the core triggers were triggering was because I was mana screwed, and if I had gift of states which costs like half as much as keeper of the core, I would still end up with like the same amount of mana, and I would have curved off a lot better and been more involved in the game to begin with, right? right. And that was the only time where keeper of the core really shined, and then uh, I did create a one one. I created like two one ones, but I board wiped them on my turn anyway because I was like, this board is disgusting. I'm going to cast this austere command now, right? And and keeper of the core got me three lands. But that was it. That was really it. And I was like, I could have had these three lands much earlier, off of a, like a land tax or something, and still, right? So I, I, I like, I find it as a good card. Don't get me wrong, anyone listening, but it's just more the fact that like I don't think it's a spectacular card. And Acroma's Will, I, I found myself in a similar situation. I have yet to run it in in any deck that I have. I find it that the that as an instant four mana is really expensive. Like if you hold that up, right? The other four mana instant that I'm thinking of is Settle the Wreckage. It becomes way too telegraphed for your opponents. Um, right. And, it yeah. For in white at least, if you're in mono white and you're you're just passing without spending any mana then um there there's only so many things that you can be doing yeah. you're 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 not holding up a draw spell <laughs> like yeah um so but yeah the the cards that I was 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 thinking of were Acroma's will like we had said and um keeper of the cord and the other one was armored sky hunter so oh my uh, god armored sky hunter is a boss <laughs> <laughs> there, there was also the uh, ones from the Kaldheim deck right um, the uh, cosmic intervention. Deck. Yeah, cosmic intervention. That was the one I was yeah. thinking of. That that's more like two mana for most people. <laughs> it, it is four yeah. on its face, right? It's four on its face, but I think that most people are actually just foretelling it and be like, "Ooh, what could right. it be?" <laughs> right. That's a that's a cool card though. I that card say. is amazing. I really like it. It it's just kind of awkward uh, with rule of law out. Uh, I find it that like the best way to like use it is with like something like Magus of the Balance or some other like uh non-spell effect like planar collapse where you just trigger it off and then you cosmic intervention it back um but it's just really hard to pull off like uh, i've not really done it in cdh but in casual magic you know that's like one of my favorite cards to just rip on someone and be like haha suckers look at this card i mean it's also great with rest in peace because you because they're both replacement effects so you can actually just choose to exile them from cosmic intervention and your creatures wouldn't go in under rest in peace right right yeah as usual rewarding people who are willing to kind of look into some of those nuances nuances of the you know game rules interactions to be able to Come back to the, the the spirit of the labyrinth thing, in in the way that I think of it, where you know you're kind of forcing yourself 
to find the the non-obvious ways of of gaining advantage and finding ways to uh, find new, I guess, angles of attack or angles of, of of beating your opponents that are not so obvious. I mean, I looked into it a little too hard and I got punished for it. Like, uh, <laughs> did you see the rules change that they made for the commander replacement effect? Uh, for, yep. for in which case? For the containment priest uh, interaction. So if your opponent, if, if for example you you cast like uh, 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 otherworldly journey, which is like the first version of that card printed, they made a blue version and then made a non-arcane version of it. Um, but that was from Common Gauss, so I'm just going to reference that one. If you cast Otherworldly Journey, which is exile target creature, then at the beginning of the next end step, return it to the battlefield with a plus one, plus one uh, counter, right? If right. you say that you target your opponent's commander and your opponent decide, and so with the with with the replacement rule that they have, not now, but prior to this rules change, um, you can... You don't move your commander directly to the command zone when it gets exiled. Instead, it goes to exiled, and then you make the choice as a replacement on whether or not... uh, Well, not as a replacement, but sort of almost like a special action on whether or not you want to move it to uh, the command zone, right? Right. And, And that's the only opportunity that you have. If you choose not to, it will stay in the exile zone until another event occurs. And the wording on that ruling references it as a card and not as an object. And this is important because it it is to remain consistent with a lot of other rulings about the commander card itself. For example, the unique commanderness. Like for example, if you have a commander out and then it gets flipped upside down by Ixadron, it still does commander damage even though it's a face down card because uh we know what that card is, it's the commander, right? Uh even though like it might like it could be like a different object altogether, let's say, right? Cuz an object is it has its own uh properties or values or objectness based on its given zone. Uh, and the reason why this becomes relevant is because um, if at the beginning of the end step, you know, otherworldly, otherworldly journey's trigger goes on the stack and your opponent's commander were to come back, you flash in a containment priest. Containment priest then replaces the return trig- the, the return by putting it back into the exile zone. But there was a ruling that you know, Watsi had when they did Cold Snap and uh, with the card, I think, Void Maw. And uh, they wanted it so that uh, you couldn't do some really weird, like, inane loop of, you know, uh, m- moving something from exile just to put it back into exile again. And so uh, they made a ruling where if a card were to leave exile just to go back to exile, it never actually left exile. Instead, it's just treated as a new object because it references the thing as an object and not as a card. Uh, it conflicts with the commander ruling because that oh means gosh. that means the commander and card would be gone never, forever. Yeah. The commander card never moved back into the exile. zone. it always stayed there. So your opponent never gets another opportunity to move the commander elsewhere. Uh, so it just stays in exile forever. Uh, and I brought this up, and and it, it flustered some of the casual players. Apparently this was a ruling that was brought up by another judge previously, but no one, you know, 
went further to investigate and then i i kind of like revived the dead horse in a way and 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 i brought in the commander rc discussion and there was hot discussion about it the casual players were pissed off at me uh for for bringing it up <laughs> and then sheldon caught wind of it and then uh and then they made a quick rules change announcement after Kaldheim got released like fixing that and it was really funny because if you read the description they use the specific containment priest example that i have but you can actually do this with a bunch of other effects too but you know just screw me am i right <laughs> they called me they, they call there's like uh the, the example that they had was like this person then cast containment priest and stops your commander from coming back what a fiend <laughs> and i was like <laughs> well, i was yeah. like uh, That's... yeah the, co- the white color identity. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, well, white is the color of rules. So understanding rules, understanding all these things is, in my opinion, very rewarding. It's a demonstration of skill. It's, it's, it's a demonstration of growth as a player when you're playing the game. It's the same thing that I had with my example with Thieves Auction, that the mileage and power level of that card doesn't scale within the card itself. It scales with the player who plays it, right? And that's an amazing design, in my opinion. Like, where a card has a different outcome depending on who plays it, that's that's really awesome, right? Like, to me. Right. Because it, it shows variance. It shows that a card can't be played in one way. It's very thematic and flavorful in that way, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, like the, 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 the white... The, the mono white player using rules as as their as their as their weapons right and having cards that allow them to manipulate the rules so that you know they can they can stack two different rules together against each other in that way uh is very thematic to me it's very mono white and and, and they take that away from me <laughs> i don't feel like that's what's happening no uh, no no i'm i'm being very facetious <laughs> How dare I you? Think that, <laughs> right. I think that's probably a good point coming kind of full circle back around mm-hmm. um, for us to, to start wrapping up here. Um, did you guys have any parting blows before we uh, kick this one off? Um, we kind no, of, not. yeah, I, I, I think we kind of hit the goal of, you know, kind of meandering around and just kind of shooting the breeze on this one. And yeah, um, yeah. I think we got some really interesting conversation then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throughout the weeds. Yeah, I mean, I think we 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 we've given some more thoughts and highlights, in a way, about the future of white. Some things that like we talked about in terms of like uh, technical stuff with like replacement effects and uh, and how we understand parity and breaking parity and stacks as well. That I think that was really helpful and fruitful, uh, honestly. And we got to know a little bit of ourselves. Uh, I realized we actually never really got to touch upon you, Cobblepot. Uh, I think like we only did so in passing, uh, right. unfortunately. Well, I'm sure that we'll be able to, to do that in the future at some point. Yeah, Yeah, we'll have to do a part two to this. Yep, I yeah, think so. Yeah. We get Callahan on here when he feels better, right? That's right. Yeah. So, well, that about wraps things up for us here today. Uh, just a quick reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at Sculpty Boys, or you can find a direct link in our link tree in the description below. Uh, want also to give extra thanks to all of our patrons because they help keep us, uh, the lights on. If you would like to become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com slash the mind sculptors or check out the link in the description. Thanks again for, for joining us. And from all of us here at the mind sculptors, I'm Cobblepot and we will see you next time. Yeah.